Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. I'm Jim Gordon. The scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 112. Hallelujah. Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. His descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and the righteousness and his righteousness endures forever. Light shines in the darkness of the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. He will never be shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident, trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured. He will not fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He distributes freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked one will see it and be angry. He will gnash his teeth in despair. The desire of the wicked leads to ruin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jim, for reading. Thank you, Avery, Pete, and Scott for leading us in song. Let's continue this posture of worship as we pray to our Father together. Our Father, we acknowledge that you are Lord. You are high and lifted up. You are sovereign over all. Your kingdom will never end. We ask right now that your name would be honored in this place. We ask right now that your kingdom would come in this place. We ask right now that your will would be done in this place, that we can say on earth as it is in heaven. Father, you know our needs. You know what we need. We ask that you give it to us. Father, you know our sins. You know the motives of our heart, the selfishness in our bodies. We ask that you would forgive us and give us the strength to forgive others. And Father, we know that we are weak. We are prone to wander. We are prone to deception, to believe lies. And so I ask that you would not lead us into temptation, but rather you would deliver us from the lies of the evil one. Father, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm 112. We have these bookmarks here uh, for you. 
if you have not received one yet, it's uh, the bookmarks from this sermon series. It's true, true flourishing. And if you have not received one yet, that we have some uh, in the back out there in the Connect Center. Uh, and also, again, this is just a not-so-passive-aggressive reminder that you should bring an actual book uh, to read the Bible with you in, uh, because studies have shown that you retain more when you read an actual physical book, and this bookmark is a way to, to uh, you know, remind you of that. Anyway, we've been in this series uh, on true flourishing. We've been tracing this word and this theme throughout the entire Psalter of happiness or blessedness or flourishing. We are in week seven of eight in this. I can't believe it, time flies. Um, True flourishing comes from, by way of summary, true flourishing comes from Psalm one, we looked at how true flourishing comes from meditation. Meditation on the law of the Lord, on the word of God. Meditation is not emptying your mind, but filling your mind. And it's not filling your mind with just anything, it's filling your mind with the very words of God himself. You want to, you want to see flourishing happen in your life? Do you want to be able to not fear bad news, to be like a tree that's firmly planted so that when storms come, you're steady? Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Delight in it. The second week, second week we looked at Psalm 2, Surrender, true flourishing comes from surrender only when we take our fists, which are often closed around the desires of our hearts and the wills of our lives, and when we open them and we surrender and say, here I am, Lord. You are king, I am not. See, the lie is that uh, uh, true flourishing comes when we rule our own lives. But the truth from the scripture is that true flourishing comes when we surrender our lives to Jesus. The third week in Psalm 32, we looked at confession. By the way, I'm just going down this bookmark as a little you know, reminder. We looked at confession. If we do not confess our sins to the Lord and to one another, we will rot on the inside. It will cause bitterness to grow, anger to grow. The lie is that you need to, you need to keep your sins to yourselves because you don't want people to like, think of you poorly. The truth is that, guys, who, I mean, we, we're all sinful. You know, we, true, true flourishing comes, the freedom that comes from confession is unmatched. True flourishing comes from confession. The fourth week we looked at trust in Psalm 40. True flourishing, happiness, blessedness comes from a complete trust in the Lord. The lie is that you just have to trust yourself. Just try a little bit harder. Just do more because then God will like you or affirm you or just be happy with you and that's, not, that's the lie. The truth is that true flourishing comes when you just say, God, I'm risking everything for you. I'm giving you everything. I trust you. Psalm 41, we looked at true flourishing comes from considering the poor. Considering the poor. Uh, the lie is that true flourishing comes from when you hoard all your resources because then you'll be happy once you have that next promotion, that next paycheck, that next car, that next whatever. The truth comes when you actually give away everything because you have been given everything. You were poor and Jesus made you rich. And this isn't just spiritual poverty, this is actual, literal poverty. We looked at the entire corpus of the scriptures and saw how God's heart is for the poor, the materially impoverished. If we want the heart of God, we want to be filled with the fullness of Christ. We consider the poor. Last week, Tom talked about dwelling. True flourishing comes from dwelling with the Lord. Psalm 84, better is one day in your presence, God, than a thousands elsewhere. Can you say that? Can you say that in your life? God, I would rather spend one day in your presence than a thousand in my dream destination vacation. 
It's a big statement. We looked at throughout, again, from Genesis to Revelation, how God's plan is always to be with his people. His presence is their good. In his presence, there are treasures forevermore. At his right hand, there are treasures forevermore. Dwelling with the Lord leads to flourishing. And that's hard. All these things are hard, by the way. These are not easy things to do because it's easier to meditate on the podcast that you like or the Netflix show that you like or the whatever that you like. It's easy to take matters into your own hands. It's easy to hoard all your resources. It's easy to ignore the poor among you. It's easy to dwell with every, anything else other than the Lord. But over and over again, we see that that does not lead to true flourishing. That leads to chaos of all kinds, anxieties of all kinds, bitterness of all kinds, division of all kinds. True flourishing comes from humbling ourselves and seeking the Lord. And then today, Psalm 112, true flourishing comes from fearing the Lord, fearing the Lord. Today we get to talk a lot about fear and all God's people said. (laughs) Amen. Some people said amen. Thank you. (laughs) I was not expecting that. I was expecting crickets. Um, We have a lot of uncovering to do with this word fear. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but every time you open the Bible, you're actually traveling through space and time makes the Bible reading a lot more fun because one, the Bible was not written in English. Two, it was not written in 2020 anything, honestly. Uh, Three, it was not written in Iowa. And four, it just was written in a different language, which I already said that, but whatever. Um, The the Bible was written on the other side of the world, right? That's a complete, if you went to the Middle East today, you would have some cultural language barriers to get over in order to, to talk to them, right? Now imagine you did that, but then you rewound the clock 2,000 years, and then you have even more cultural differences, and I mean, it's a completely different world, it seems like. The point being is when I say the word fear today, it could bring up a lot of different definitions. It could bring up a lot of different fears. I say the word fear today, we could go a hundred different topics, right? We could talk about being afraid, right? People are afraid of spiders or of darkness or of public speaking, which is, that's actually, I think, the biggest fear. Like, people are most afraid of public speaking. Uh, we could talk about having anxiety, right? Fear, that's a real thing. Anxiety is a real thing. So when I say fear today, we could talk about anxiety. If I say fear today, you could talk about, like, the limbic system and the chemicals that are, and the neurological things that are firing in your brain and your body when you experience the emotion of fear. We could talk about fear tactics used uh, by news and by politicians today, right? To make you fear some other person or some other group. Um, We could talk about fear tactics in like all news. A a couple years ago, somebody said, uh, I'm really, really anxious. And then I found out that they were watching like three hours of news every single day. And I was like, well, you maybe want to cut out some of that a little bit. And they're like, well, no, news doesn't make me anxious. And then I said, let's do an experiment. You watch the news every single day for three or four hours. Watch it, listen to it, read it, whatever. Then the next week, you don't watch any news at all and you tell me which be- the weeks between the two weeks you're more fearful or not fearful. Now, I'm not saying news is a bad thing. I'm just saying when we meditate on the news, it will cause fears of all kinds. We could talk about that fear. We could talk about fear of the end of the world. I've heard that a lot recently, like, oh, things are getting worse and worse. And, you know, that one person who said that they finally rightfully interpreted the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation for the first time in all of church history, and they know that the world is ending, that's fear. That's a fearful theology, and it's wrong. We could talk about all those fears, but we're not going to talk about any of those fears today. I just decided to throw all those topics at you and stir the pot a little bit and and, uh, 
say we're not gonna talk about those things. The point being is this, when I say the word fear, we could talk about a hundred different things, but what do all those things I just mentioned have in common? They're all negative. All of them are negative. I say the word fear today, we hear the word fear today, we think negative things, something I myself need to avoid in my own life, nobody likes to be fearful in their own life, or I'm gonna use this thing to weaponize, uh, use it and weaponize it against somebody else and cause fear in their life. Fear is almost always a negative thing when we talk about it today. And this is why reading the Bible is traveling through space and time because when we look at the Bible and the biblical definition of fear, we see something vastly different than the way we talk about fear today. We don't see fear as something negative exclusively. We do see fear as something negative, but not exclusively. We see fear rather in both negative and in positive ways. And the reason that, that I mentioned all these things is because those things that I mentioned earlier are important, but again, we're not, the, the biblical authors are not using the same word that we're using here. When they say the word fear, they mean something, something else. And the Bible does talk about negative fear, but it almost always commends positive fears. What do I mean by this? Look at Psalm 112, the Psalm that we're in today. Psalm 112, verse one. Hallelujah, which just means uh, praise Yahweh. Happy is the person who fears the Lord. Okay, so fear of the Lord should be a good thing, right? That's what it seems like. The fear of the Lord should be a good thing. Happy is the person who fears the Lord. We're talking about true flourishing. Where does it come from? It comes from fearing the Lord. Now, look down a little bit at verse eight. Look down at verse eight. It's, this is talking about the person who's fearing the Lord, who greatly delights in his command. All of these things are true about him. Verse eight, his heart is assured he will not fear. Okay, so now I, I shouldn't fear. Well, that's better because that's kind of how we use the definition of fear today. But earlier it said you should fear the Lord and here it says you should not fear, period. It's the same word in Hebrew. There's no you know, trickery going on here. It's the word fear. So what is it? Should we fear or should we not fear? Well, to make things more confusing, 1 John 4, 18 says what? Perfect love casts out fear. Okay, so fear is a bad thing. Don't have it. But Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Luke 1 says that Jesus' birth would deliver us from fear. Okay, so no fear. I don't need fear in my life. But Luke 1, 50, later it says that the Lord's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Hebrews 2, 15 uh, Christ delivers those who through fear of death have been enslaved their entire lives. So fear actually enslaves you your entire life. We've been freed from that in Christ. But Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of everything. This is all that matters. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. So what is it? Is fear a negative thing or is fear a positive thing? Well, in our culture today, fear is almost exclusively a negative thing, but in the Bible, it seems that there are two different types of fears, and that's exactly right. Theologians in the Christian church have long recognized that there are two types of fears in the Bible, and here they are. They'll be up on the screen as well. There is a fear that drives you from God. This is known as sinful fear, servile fear, slavish fear, ungodly fear. There is also a fear, same word, same idea, same feeling, that draws you toward God. 
also known throughout church history as religious fear, filial fear, holy fear, godly fear, or right fear. There are two fears in the Bible. There's a fear that drives you from God, and there's a fear that draws you toward God. Let's look at a few examples. Genesis 3 is the first time the word fear comes up in the Bible. First time the word fear comes up in the Bible. Adam and Eve have decided to take matters into their own hands. They've decided to define good and evil on their own. They take of the fruit of the tree, they eat it. Then they realize all the stuff that's going on and then they hear the sound of God walking in the garden and God says, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden and I was afraid. What is that? That's a fear that drives you from God. Exodus 19 and 20, Moses and the Israelites are at Mount Sinai, right? You remember this and the the mountain is there and God's presence comes down and smoke and thunder and lightning and all of Israel was supposed to go up on the mountain. All of Israel was supposed to go up on the mountain. And then what happened? The Israelites saw the thunder, they saw the lightning, they saw the smoke and they were afraid and it literally says they backed up. They walked away and they said, Moses, you do you go, I'm too scared, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna be there. What is that? That is a fear that literally drove them away from God. In Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable of an unfaithful servant that feared the master. And the master was being Jesus, and at this point, the, ma- the, the master ended up calling this slave foolish. And fear drove him from God. Now, what, what makes us What's the difference between what is a fear that drives us from God and draws us toward God? Primarily, the fear that drives us away from God is primarily based on a misunderstanding of who God is. The fear that drives you from God is primarily based on a misunderstanding of God. Let me explain it this way. When was the last time you thought somebody was mad at you? Right, like a spouse, a friend, a child, parent, coworker, neighbor, boss, I don't know, you thought they were mad at you. Whether or not you were right, you thought they were mad at you. Like, oh no, I think they kind of are mad at me. I don't know if I did something. I don't know if I didn't do something. When you thought that they were mad at you, what did you do to them or with them? You probably, odds are, you probably avoided them for a little bit. If not for a long time, probably at least for a week, right? Like, oh no, this person's mad at me. Oh, there they come. Okay, I'm gonna walk over here. Like, oh, I can't talk to them. And I'd be willing to bet that at least for a little bit of time we avoided them, which, uh, which means that that is a fear, whether it's, whether it's true or not, that's a fear that drives us away from that person. And then eventually, we've all experienced this too, where you, think of, where you talk to that person actually. You're like, hey, by the way, you talk, like, I think you're mad at me, are you mad at me? And you actually address the problem and you make peace and then you realize that they weren't mad at you at all. They're like, what are you talking about? I wasn't mad at you, no, no. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, Thank you. What was that? That was a misunderstanding of that person that led you to fear that drove you away from them. Misunderstandings of God always lead to fear that drives us away from God. Think about a few of these misunderstandings. We could have a misunderstanding and we think that God is just some egomaniac in the sky and he can't wait that he can't wait till you mess up so that he can punish you one day wow that will drive you away from God 
drive you away from God to the point where you deny his existence or drive you away from God to the point where you live in a rigid religion that you make on your own, constantly trying to get God to like you. That's a misunderstanding of God that produces fear that drives us from God. Here's another misunderstanding. God is harsh and dreadful. God is harsh and dreadful. That will produce a fear. A fear that will drive you to serve God out of obligation. A fear that will give you the mindset of a reluctant slave who obeys his master, not out of any love, but purely from the fear of the whip. That'll drive you to serve God out of a slavish fear. People will perform all manners of external duties in order to appease the God that they secretly despise. That's a misunderstanding of God that produces a fear of God that drives you away from God. Here's another misunderstanding. You think that God sent his son into the world because he felt obligated to. Because humans are just a big mistake and we are just the worst and we can't do anything right. So God begrudgingly sent his son to save us. That'll produce a fear. Fear that God is always just slightly disappointed at you. Fear that God is just like, come on, seriously, not again. And if we avoid a person that we think is slightly disappointed in us, how much more will we avoid God if we think he is slightly disappointed in us? All of those fears that drive us from God are based on a misunderstanding of who God is and they will drive us to all other gods that we can create and we can control on our own. The God of gluttony, the God of self, the God of self-sustainability, the God of money, the God of comfort, the God of religion. Guys, the God of religion is easily controllable and it is tempting for us as Christians. It's tempting for us to worship a systematized religion that God can fit into because it's easier and I don't fear it. And I can control it and it's more predictable. But guys, we don't follow a system. We don't follow a, a, a law even. We follow a person, God, Jesus, his son. That's who we follow. Because what fear will do to me is fear will drive me away from God and then, and then compel me to make gods in my own image. Because those gods in my own image are much easier to worship than God is. I heard this quote last week, Satan's chief labor is to misrepresent God. Satan's chief labor is to misrepresent God. So when we find ourselves worshiping other gods, gods of money, gods of self, gods of comfort, gods of religion, etc., that means that the enemy has successfully misrepresented God and we have misunderstanding of God that produces us an unhealthy, sinful fear of God that drives us away from God. You guys see the logic? When Satan gets in and deceives us, He's the father of lies. His native tongue is lies. When he comes in and he says, did God really say? And he deceives us. That gives us a misunderstanding of God that will produce a fear in us that will drive us away from God. It's Genesis 3 every single day. Did God actually say that his disposition towards you is love? Because it seems like his disposition towards you is just like putting up with you. Did God really say that he's slow to anger? Because the fact that you keep struggling with that sin over and over again, his 
His patience is probably running out at this point. Did God really say that he is wisdom? Because it seems that his ways are pretty rigid and lame and archaic. You should just, you should just define wisdom on your own. You know what's right for you. Did God really say that he's the authority? Because it seems like it's better for you if you start calling the shots on your own. What is that? It's a lie. That's, that's when we hear the misrepresentation of God and if we believe it, we take of the fruit, we eat of it, and then we hide from God just like Adam and Eve because we have a misunderstanding of who God is. The fear that drives us from God is almost always based on a misunderstanding of who God is. Think about Peter when he walked on water. He was looking at Jesus and then he what? He looked away and he became afraid. That's the fear that drives us from God. The devil's work is to give a misrepresentation of God and bring us to a fear that drives us from God, but the Spirit's work is to do what? Work in our lives that produces in us a fear that wins us and actually drops draws us to God. And this fear produces freedoms of all kinds. So there's the fear that drives us from God and there's the fear that draws us toward God. But what is this fear? What does this fear look like? What does it mean, to, the million dollar question, what does it mean to fear the Lord? When I was a kid, I was taught it meant respect and reverence, and that's true. And I have found that those words often fall short of capturing the intensity of the fear of God. Because I can respect a my boss, right? But it can't mean the same thing as respecting God. It, ha it has to be greater than that. And it also, when I was a kid, I, I heard the phrase fear of God used in a, a negative way, like, oh, I'm gonna put the fear of God in you, boy. You know, you ever hear that before? What is that? That's only fearing God's what? God's wrath. If we only fear one side of God, then that actually is a misunderstanding of who God is and that will actually eventually drive us from God. The fear of God is not just, a, some, not just respect and not just reverence and it's also not just something that we do for one aspect of God's character, wrath. We fear God for his love as much as we do his wrath. We fear God for his holiness and his transcendence as, what, as much as we do his closeness and his imminence. We fear God for his knowability as much as we fear God for his unknowability. We fear the beauty of God. You ever see something so beautiful that it causes you to shudder? The only thing that can come close to this is, I, was, I used to watch these like storm chasers videos, like the guys in like those weird car things and they're just driving right into the middle of a tornado. These guys are insane, by the way. The way they talk about the storm, whether it's a hurricane, a tornado, a big thunderstorm, the way they talk about the storm is simultaneously terrified for their life because they know that they could die instantly and completely in awe of this storm that they can't stop chasing it. That tension right there is the closest thing that I can think of when it comes to the fear of God. I think of Lucy talking to Mr. Beaver in Chronicles of Narnia. She goes, Aslan, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver goes, safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. See, when we experience God, when we see God, 
when we experience the love of God in Christ on the cross, there is a terror because we, we don't want to believe it. Deep down, we don't want to believe that we, we are fully known and fully loved. It terrifies us. There is a terror that comes when we see God, but there is also a beauty that we cannot stop thinking about, cannot stop talking about. Michael Reeves says this, and this will be on the screen, true fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all of his grace and his glory. He goes on later to say that the fear of God is the base or the source of all the fruits of the Spirit. The fear of God isn't just terror for God's wrath, and it's not just reverence and awe. It is all of those things, completely. It's the fear of the love of God. It's the fear of the grace of the God. It's the fear of the glory of the God. Isaiah 11 says that the Messiah will delight in the fear of the Lord. The Messiah will delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll take pleasure in the fear of the Lord. Why? Because you're awestruck. You're cut to the quick. You're chilled to the bone. There's a fire in the belly. Psalm 147, 11 says that the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. The fear of God describes the intensity of the love and the enjoyment of God. Charles Spurgeon says this, and this will be on the screen too. It is not because we are afraid of him, unhealthy fear, sinful fear, fear that drives you from God, but because we delight in him that we fear him. The more we fear the Lord, the more we love him. And until this becomes to us the true fear of God, to love him, wait, wait, oh yeah, the more we love him, until this becomes to us the true fear of God, to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Psalm 19 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. Psalm 2 says that worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 86 11 says unite my heart to fear your name. What the fear of the Lord is, is it's love defined. It's the love of God defined. What does it mean to love God? To fear God. What does it mean to fear God? To love God. This is the fear of God that allows us to come out of our hiding. The most frequent command in all of scriptures is do not fear. Which is interesting because another command is fear God. Fear God. Fear the Lord. This is the start of wisdom. This is the end of wisdom. This is the start of knowledge. This is the end of knowledge. Fear God. And as I was looking through the gospels especially, what, what stood out to me the most was the Mount of Transfiguration where P, uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain and he's transfigured before them and they see the glory of the Lord and Jesus is transfigured and he's white and he's wearing these white clothes and Moses and Elijah appeared and Peter and James and John, oh, to be a fly on that wall. Peter, James, and John are afraid. They're afraid. And what does Peter say? Can we make a tent? Let's make three tents, one for me, one for you, one for, like, like let's just stay here. Let's, let's do this. When the angels appear to the shepherds, when the angels appear to Mary, when the angels appear to anybody, any human, what happens? What's the first thing they say? Do not be afraid. Why? Because the presence of God produces fear. And we have one of two responses when we see the presence of God. We can either have a misunderstanding of God and say, oh no, he's too, he, he, he doesn't like me. 
He's distant. He's slightly disappointed in me. I have to go run. I need to go sow, sow fig leaves together and hide. Or we can have a fear that draws us to God from a proper understanding of who God is. Where we know that God is so pure and so holy that if we were to look, no man can see God and live. No man can see God and live. But we have seen Jesus. And we see his love. And we see his grace. And we see him casting out demons and we see him quieting the storms. And what's the response of all the people? Almost every single page of the gospels have this. The people were afraid. The people were afraid. I bet Peter, after he denied Jesus three times, was afraid. I know that Judas was afraid after he betrayed Jesus. And look at the two different responses. What did Peter do? Repented. God, I I am sorry. He went out and he wept. What did Jesus do? He was driven from God. So the question of the fear of the Lord, actually go back to Psalm 112, so sorry. Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his command. How do we cultivate the fear of God? Whenever you ask a question, how do I fill in the blank when it comes to walking with the Lord, it's always a uh, tricky road because it's like, well, you kind of have agency, but you also don't have agency. Like it's kind of you, like you have agency to cultivate a fear of God in your heart, but you also you're not fully in control because the spirit is at work in you beyond your comprehension and your knowledge. So whenever we say, how do I, I try to walk with, you know, fear and trembling, with fear and trembling. There you go, fear of the Lord. Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. I can't tell you the amount of times that the word fear and the word delight are put right next to each other in the Psalms. Fearing God is what? Delighting in his commands. And then the rest of the psalm goes on to talk about what this type of person is. Their righteousness endures forever. Wealth and riches are in his house. Light shines in the darkness. This person is gracious, upright, and righteous. Good will come to this person who conducts his business fairly. This person will never be shaken. This person will not fear bad news. Wouldn't you like that, to not fear bad news? You hear bad news about the world or a personal relationship, and you're like, I'm not afraid. This person's heart is confident, trusting in the Lord. This person's heart is assured. He will not have a fear that drives him from God. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. This person distributes freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted for, uh, in honor. But the wicked one, the wicked one, who is the person of verse one? The person who fears the Lord. What's the opposite of fearing the Lord? The wicked one will see it and be angry He will gnash his teeth in despair. The desire of the wicked always leads to ruin. I don't have time to go into it today, but there are too many parallels between this psalm and Psalm 1. Like, it's insane how many parallels there are between this psalm and Psalm 1 and Genesis 1, too. So uh, this week, I'm going to be putting up an extra podcast on the podcast where I'm gonna explore that and just kind of talk and nerd out a little bit over it. So if you want to, please go and listen to that. But it's basically Psalm 1 and Psalm 112 and Genesis 1 are all working together to talk about how the fear of the Lord, meditating on the law of the Lord, and light shining in the darkness is what leads to true flourishing. It's beautiful. So go later this week and, and listen to that. But the question then is how do we, how do we cultivate the fear of the Lord? 
And what's interesting about the fear of the Lord is that when you experience the presence of God, all other fears are relativized. Not unimportant, but relativized. As in, when Mary saw the angel, when the shepherds saw the angel, when Peter, James, and John were on the mountaintop, when Moses saw the burning bush, when Isaiah saw the throne room filled with the glory of God, when, when Solomon saw the presence of God in a cloud fill the temple, when the Israelites saw the presence of God come down on the mountaintop, what did they do? They feared God. So how do we cultivate a fear of God? We need to seek the presence of God. Do you want a fear of God in your life? Every single time that God revealed himself to people in the scriptures, it was followed by these words, do not be afraid, because they're terrified for their life. Do you want to cultivate that fear? It's not really something we can do on our own except say, Lord, show me your glory. Show me yourself. I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to seek your presence. I want to know who you are. How do we cultivate a fear of God? We seek the presence of God. How do we cultivate a fear of God as well? Remember what's the underlying um, um, uh, role that leads us to a fear that drives us from God is a misunderstanding of God. How do we combat that? We, We speak the truth from the word of God. When we hear those lies, did God really say, We are filled with the knowledge of the word of God and we say, yes, God did say that. And in fact, I am a child of God. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. I am now a temple. My body is a temple, which means that God's presence is in me. I am 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 an image of the new creation because Jesus is in me. That's what we say. And so another way to cultivate a fear of the Lord is read the Bible. No, don't read, don't don't read the Bible. Study the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Reading the Bible is just such a bland phrase nowadays. Sorry, I, does, I get really passionate about this. Like, read the Bible. Yeah, we know we're supposed to read the Bible. Study it. Do you know that we are, in America right now, the most biblically illiterate, illiterate church in almost all of human history, and we have the most resources for studying the Bible? Guys, the church fathers would have killed for what we have today and yet we are completely unaware of God and his character and his beauty. Don't just read the Bible. Anybody can read the Bible. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Psalm 1, happy is the person who meditates on it. This is why Moses said, write it on your doorpost. Put it on something on your forehead. Write it on your hand. Put it everywhere. Because if we do not understand who God is, then we will be so easily deceived so easily deceived to think that and then that deception will lead to a misunderstanding of God and that misunderstanding of God will, dr- will create in us a fear that will drive us from God and what's the result of if, we drive, if we're driven from God we try to make gods on our own including the God of the Bible we try to put this God in a box try to systematize it so I know what to do what not to do where to be when what to believe what not to believe who to vote for who not to vote for who to stay around who not to stay around we don't follow that we follow a person, and that person loves you, and he gave himself for you. All we have to do is just look for him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see 
God. True flourishing comes not from a fear that drives us from God, but rather a fear that draws us to God. Being in the presence of God produces this fear. Every time somebody sees the Lord in the scriptures, even just one of his, mess- his messengers, it's so other, so pure, so lovely, so beautiful, so powerful, so majestic that they fear. What causes this fear? Being in the presence of God and delighting in his commands. What do you delight in? What do you delight in? You know, you can work your taste buds. You can choose to delight in something else. We know this with acquired tastes, right? Like, I don't think anybody actually likes coffee or cherry tomatoes, <laughs> but you can, you can literally train your taste buds to like it, right? When you read this verse, happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands, and you think to yourself, I don't take great delight in God's commands. Or you read last week's verse of Psalm 84, better is one day in your court than a thousand other, elsewhere, and you think to yourself, I can't say that. That's okay for now. God loves you where you're at, but he doesn't want you to stay there. You can train your taste buds to long for the banquet of heaven. You can train your body to fear the Lord. You can train your heart to marvel at God's goodness. It starts by seeking the presence of God and meditating, memorizing, studying the word of God. Each week we uh, observe communion, and we do this each week not to make it a rote thing, but because we believe that repetition over the long haul can actually train us over and over and over again. Till one point it might come out that you're taking, excuse me, you're taking communion, you're taking the elements, and you're like, Jesus loves me. God gave himself for me. I'm, I'm, I'm eating his body, drinking his blood in remembrance of him. This is what I do every single week. And so cultivating the fear of God is, is, is part something we can do and part something we can't do, but it's love defined, and greater love is none than this, that God, Jesus laid down his life for us. So I'm gonna pray, and then when I'm done praying, I invite you guys, if you're a believer, if you're a follower, a disciple of Jesus, if you're following Jesus actively, I'm gonna invite you to stand and come take the elements and we can observe the, the, uh, the communion table together. So Father, I ask that you would create in us and cultivate in us a fear of you. Not a fear that drives us from you, but a fear that draws us toward you. I ask God that we would not be content with where we are. That you would give us a holy discontentment a discontentment that leads us to seek you. To long for you. To look at you with such love, such trembling, that our lives are marked, are changed because of it. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Show us your glory, God. Show us who you are. Reveal yourself to us in fresh ways that we might seek you, be formed into your image, and live on mission for the renewal of our city. We give our our lives to you. We give this time to you. And we pray all this in your son's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.
Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.